Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Policy Dispatch. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Thanks for tuning in. I think it's safe to say that everyone listening to this podcast will have at some point over the last couple of weeks wondered whether it is time to turn on the heat in or whether another couple of days can be ridden out by sticking to thick sweaters and hot water bottles. Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, after all, has triggered an energy price crisis the likes of which we have not experienced before. Governments have responded to varying degrees with quick fixes like subsidies, while regulators are mulling long-term solutions like energy efficiency upgrades and fuel switching. Everyday people and small businesses are bearing the main brunt of the crisis, which is in some cases redefining how we think about terms like energy poverty and consumers. Today we're going to be talking about the solutions available, rating some of the strategies that have already been put in place, and discussing what Europe can learn from other parts of the world. To shed some insight on all of this, I'm joined today by Marine Cornelis, founder and executive director of Next Energy Consumer, a consultancy that advises organisations on how best to put people back at the heart of the energy system. Marine focuses on energy justice, clean power and sustainable development. And on top of all that, she is one of the first ambassadors of the European Climate Pact. Just before I bring in Marine, though, it's time for the now obligatory policy dispatch quiz question. This week, I'm asking you the following. Worldwide, heating is one of the biggest consumers of energy. Industrial processes, keeping our homes and offices warm, cooking our food and so on. Now, according to the International Energy Agency, what percentage of final energy consumption is heating responsible for at a global level? Is it 25%? 50% or 75%? Answer at the end of the episode. Now, on with the show. So, joining us today uh, to discuss this really important issue that is on the tip of basically everybody's tongues at the moment, uh, we're joined by Maureen. Uh, Maureen, thank you for joining us on this. I think it's the uh, seventh episode of this podcast. So, uh, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Seven is a lucky number, isn't it? I believe so, in, in some culture or whatever. I think um, every culture's got a lucky number, right? So, we'll, we'll be... Um... We'll be really set until the end of the series. Um, <laughs> so um, energy price crisis, that's what we've been calling it for, um, it seems like, almost 12 months now. Um, it's impacting loads of people, many of whom have never had to face this kind of problem before. Um, how do you think it is reshaping the definitions of energy poverty and who should actually be considered the most vulnerable um, and vulnerable energy consumers? Because it's almost as if there's this paradigm Kind of shift happening at the moment um, where we really need to rethink um, who is actually um, the most affected by this crisis. So um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, indeed, uh, well, 
we can see that we are now in the middle of uh, a, cl- a very big crisis where uh, you see middle class uh, moving uh, from the comfortable kind of comfortable situation to uh, energy poverty because they struggle with their energy bills and the overall rise in living costs. Um, just some figures there uh, back uh to 2021, for instance, uh, more than 50 million people in Europe were unable to afford to heat their homes at comfortable levels. And that's when prices were still quite under control. So um, now me and many people are very, very worried that this figure could uh, double or triple uh, in, in the coming winter. And um, and yes, because usually energy poverty happens when households cannot meet uh, its energy needs because of low income, high cost and low energy efficiency of their homes. And, and right now we are in the middle of a perfect, perfect storm uh, because of the uh, high energy costs, uh, because of the, 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 the incomes that are shrinking because of inflation. And also because uh, the EU has not done enough on energy efficiency uh, in homes for 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 ages, so um, uh, so it's um, it's it's really it's it's really difficult uh, to 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 and and kind of sad to to see that uh, it it could have been this situation could have been avoided uh, if if we had taken pay closer attention to the issue uh, years ago, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we, we consider how um, this would affect the energy transition, which is ongoing and which pretty much every ex- expert sees as a solution to many of these problems, you know, cheap, green energy um, that can be used by, you know, decentralized as well, that would um, reduce energy dependence on other countries. Um, do you think that this is going to, this energy price crisis, do you think that it's going to shift consumer attitudes towards that green transition, the the solution in a negative or a positive way? I I can't say yet, but I I see that consumers are being kind of forced to become more and more interested in energy in general. But uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure it's for the right reasons. Uh, It's because they have to make trade-offs. And and furthermore, the quality of the information they receive may not always be optimal. Um, On the contrary, there are there is a lot of confusion, many unanswered questions. And, you know, for instance, for example, just on the prices and on the fact that those prices are increasing. And um, I guess that for many people, it remains very difficult to understand that even if you had chosen uh, a while back a 100% green offer with the cooperative supplier, etc., the price of electricity is still subject to variations linked to gas prices. Um, so, um, with the rising cost of living in general, who can really afford to invest in renovation and or in solar panels? So, um, I mean, you and I, uh, we are kind of experts in the sector. We see the big picture and we see how important it is to make those investments. But we 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 also need to be very, very careful to be as clear and informative as possible. Because for many people, it's just impossible to make that investment now. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that's why, um, maybe to the EU's credit, to some extent, they have done um, the right thing by basically batting away every kind of suggestion that this energy price crisis would need a, um, shall we say, a pause or even a full suspension of you know the Green Deal as a whole, or even things like emissions trading and, and things which affect the green transition. And they've been very clear cut in saying 
know if anything, this is actually a reason to accelerate what we're doing. Do you think that's been a good, um, so we say, sort of comms decision or great communication from them on, on that issue anyway? Uh, well, I think we need to accelerate, of course, the, the transition. And I'm, I'm really not, uh, I mean, I think that the EU has been very clear that we need to accelerate, but, but they have to be clear at every level. Um, you know, I, I am very, very concerned that governments are spending so much money to contain the energy prices. Uh, and, you know, it will have some consequences because the, the tap will, will, of course, uh, will, of course, get down at a certain moment. Uh, because, I mean, you can't create more money, like, indefinitely to contain those prices. So, um, so I feel that, you know, providing money to households is something that is really important to to help them uh, afford the, the energy prices now but uh, policymakers whether they are uh, at the European level at national level or even at the local level they must really look at the structural solutions which are as you said energy efficiency efficient renovation of housing but also the reduction of our dependence on fossil fuels um, so uh, you know it comes with different tools and instruments and you know I'm kind of worried that the uh, tools that are being um, uh, developed at the moment are kind of uh, uh, a way uh, so, uh, too much of a one size fits all solution whereas uh we really need some um some targeted subsidies for the most vulnerable for the poorest in general uh, for the low income because uh generalized subsidies they they get uh they are only a drop uh for 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 some people who can actually afford making those changes so it's it's really about uh you know uh, spearheading the change and spearheading the, the the people who need it most because they are the one who cannot afford uh, uh, heating their home this winter and 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 maybe cooling their home next summer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. I mean, I uh, held off putting my own heating on for I must say a good two weeks. It's it's on now because of um, you know the sheer necessity of um, needing it to be on. Um, I mean, if we can sort of draw a a parallel between um, this crisis and the, the the COVID crisis to an extent, just for one kind of little issue, that during the communication for that, there was always this idea, right, we need to get through this winter and then uh, things will be better because of, you know, the, the sort of traits of this pandemic. Um, if we look at this crisis, um, how concerned are you about next winter and the subsequent ones? Because there's, there seems to be that issue is lacking here where it isn't kind of, right, we need to get through to, to March and then everything will be okay because we will have, you know, uh, bought loads of gas again or we will have retrofitted all of our buildings or will have given a free solar panel to every house. Obviously, not particularly realistic policies, but um, this doesn't seem to be a crisis that has a um, definite end, shall we say. It does seem to be one that will last a long time, but perhaps one that people don't realize that is the case if that's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the parallel with the COVID is quite interesting uh, also because um, during the COVID crisis, many governments uh, suddenly considered that every consumer was vulnerable, which means that um, in practice, they uh, benefited from additional uh, protection measures, such as uh, a ban on disconnection for non-payment 
which uh, was actually uh, quite a good thing because if you cannot uh, have, uh, I mean, the majority of the people who can who are disconnected for non-payment, they are people who are struggling so much at many many different of levels of their lives, and and really if you cut electricity, you cut a lifeline to their lives, whether they are like households or they are small businesses as well. Uh, so there, that was a policy that I think should be replicated and uh, that should be uh, even reinforced, uh, like this ban, ban on disconnection, but not only now, but also in in the, 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 the years to come. So there is really this aspect that needs to be addressed. And I know that the European Commission has already kind of, uh, in, in its communication on energy poverty that published uh, last year was already saying we need to address uh, we need to ban this connection to help consumers but I think it also needs to to be uh, extended to small businesses as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, when I mean small businesses it's not only about the corner shop it can be also um, uh, you know shelters it can be also uh, food banks it can be also public libraries for instance P places where people uh, tend to shelter when it's too cold outside. So uh, they, it's just uh, just observing what people do, what people want, etc. And for instance, I'm quite worried that this summer, this winter or the next or the, the following one, uh, some municipalities will decide to close schools uh, one hour earlier to save on their electricity or, or gas costs, mm -hmm. you know? And what does that mean? It means that children will have to go back to to home and maybe their home won't be heated either so you know it's it's very it's very complex when you when you when you see a kind of a bigger picture and you see where people go what kind of activities they have etc etc so um so um it's it's really about um being mindful that the of the the consequences of our decisions they they can be really really lasting and they can be uh they can really impact a generation even even more than 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 covid somehow it really is fascinating how these various crises that we've been living through the last couple of years do um sort of shine a light on um human behavior and perhaps how it hasn't been quite uh, understood in the past shall we say you know as an example i found myself saying yes to going to the cinema that i probably wouldn't have said yes to because oh the room's going to be warm or something like that you know so the, the point you make about um you know public library shelter and, and you know children being sent home is is definitely a, a really interesting one i mean we've used this word um consumer uh, a few times already, I think. So I, I just had this question. It came up on um, our other podcast, actually, What Matters, uh, which everyone listening to this should definitely check out as well. Um, my colleagues recently did an episode on energy poverty. Um, the question, is consumer a term we should actually still be using, uh, considering the rise of you know prosumerism and the increased degree of participation of people in, in energy policy, shall we say? That came up. Um, I mean, what's your take on that? Could, could the language that we use to um, basically describe people um, be upgraded to an extent? Is that word consumer still you know, fit for purpose in a way? Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting and, and kind of funny question because when I gave a name to my business, I thought Next Energy Consumer was quite straightforward. You would understand exactly what I was doing as a as a policy consultant. But, but indeed, uh, I think that more than consumers, we are, all of us, we are citizens with rights. And uh, we should be considered as such. Um, and for me, it means uh, that we have to 
I mean, the EU or its or policymakers or even the society has to reflect on how to re really implement a right to energy. I'm not saying 100% free energy, uh, but I mean, recognizing that accessing and using energy is a fundamental human right that goes beyond this kind of market value and the commodity aspect. Um, and uh, just to give you an example, electricity is needed for most modern medical procedures, uh, you know, uh, to an operation or a scanner or something like that, but it's also used to store food. We saw it during the pandemic. It was also uh, very important to, you know, to store the vaccines, for instance, but also to power the appliances that really enable us to live our lives. So, um, so I guess that it's really, it's really time to think about the, the big picture of, of this right to energy. So it means in practice, I mean, I, I've worked a little bit on that, but it means really about, providing access to infrastructures, keeping prices affordable, keeping business and decision makers accountable, you know, and also providing redress in case of infringement. Um, and interestingly, linking back to energy poverty, in my work, I have noticed that uh, the most vulnerable are not making use of their rights, uh, whatever they are. And they are they end up paying a poverty premium uh, that has impact at many different levels. So, um, you know, I think we have been thinking about that and I think we need ed energy education more than ever. And just as we need financial education uh, and, you know, it's a very hard and long-term job, but it's the only way forward and it's the only way we, we build long-term trust and, and resilience as well. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try our subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. I mean, just to, just to sort of share a, a a small anecdote as well. I mean, I recently came home and saw that my um, my parents had finally caved in to get in a smart meter, something that they were always, um, you know, against for kind of inexplicable reasons. Uh, and now all they do is is check it whenever they go to the kitchen to see what the you know the usage currently is, and they've adapted their behaviour to you know use different appliances at different times. You know, so I, I think even for um, the older generation, there's you know little tweaks and things that maybe can be can be done as well. Um, if we sort of just zoom in on on sort of the, the actual policies that you know, first of all, that, that Europe is attempting to implement as part of its Green Deal. I mean, the Green Deal encompasses every aspect of, of everyday life, so it's already a, a social policy, shall we say? Mm -hmm. But how does it concretely put consumers at the heart of its policies? I mean, there's been a lot of emphasis on the social dimension of things in the Fit for Fifty Five package. Um, but what is actually there and, and what could the EU be doing better sort of with, with real tangible policies, would you say? Yeah, uh, well, I think that the EU made some progresses. You know, I started uh, working in this field about uh, 
13, 14 years ago. And, you know, consumers were, were not really invited at the table. It was mostly a high-level discussions between regulators, policymakers, and businesses that were promoting some kind of a, uh, tools that uh, nobody could actually understand. And at the time, I was wa- working for, for Energy Ombudsman, and, uh, and I was uh, receiving calls from people who could not pay their bills and who were struggling to, you know, they, they, they had to make those uh, terrible choices between keeping uh, an employee at work or, um, or, or paying their energy bills. So, you know, I had these very, very tangible problems and, and there were these uh, very high level discussions that had nothing to do with, with daily lives. And, um, and, you know, the EU has evolved, and uh, and now uh, the it's considered that consumers should be at the center. But in practice, you 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 said that about your parents. Uh, people, what people want is comfort, and uh, and and affordability because they want to support their lifestyles. Yeah. Um, and and energy in general is not something people think about, except when the prices are going up. Um, so I think that the EU is now enabling some very exciting initiatives and projects. Uh, for example, I, I, I love the idea of energy communities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ultimately more direct participation in the local clean energy generation process. But let's be honest, it's still very marginal. Not everybody knows what an energy community is, and, and there are not energy communities everywhere. Uh, so really to be truly social i think um i mean the intention is here but now we also need to the eu must provide the means including the financial means for the process to get moving uh and it means really like targeting uh funding uh targeting uh, local organizations targeting um the actors that are already at the contact of the public and that can make a difference and that can really steer the change in a certain direction Mm-hmm. Well, these kind of policies, would you say that they can be implemented effectively um, from Brussels and through the institutions? Or do you think like so many other things with um, energy and climate policies, a lot of success does hinge on what national authorities do, whether or not they're, they're staffed um, sufficiently, whether or not they have the right funding or even the right know-how to um you know, approach the right people to to make sure that they know that funding is available for different projects? Um, or do you think there is a lot that the Brussels can actually achieve um, basically by itself rather than having to rely on, you know, local governments or, or national governments putting the right money where it's needed? Yeah, I, I think you mentioned, you, 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 we are missing actually the, the elephant in the room, which are businesses. Mm-hmm. Like how can the EU empower businesses so that they make tangible action at the local level? Uh, because at the at really, if we just take energy poverty, the most tangible and stronger actions and the one that really make a difference are the one happening at the local level. You can have national programs, but if you really want to address energy poverty, you have to, uh, for instance, look at the, the, the quality of the building, the quality of the housing, and that is extremely dependent on the, 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 the build, local building codes, the local materials that are used or being used uh, to, 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 to build or retrofit the homes. Uh, so it's it's very 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 uh, like um, uh, very 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 local, uh, and the skills are also local. And and you know the workers uh, working on uh, on retrofitting etc. They they don't 
care about Brussels. They don't care about policies. What they want is to to be able to perform their job. So mm-hmm. how can uh, businesses, whether they are uh, renovation businesses, whether they are tech businesses uh, uh, that are you know, a provider of smart meters or, or any kind of digital tools, etc. Uh, how can uh, energy companies, uh, how can they uh, be also kind of uh, empowered to make uh, to make things happen at the local level too? So it's 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 uh, it's 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 really fascinating to think that uh, the EU thinks only or maybe is not uh, is not so much interested in uh, the kind of uh, market actions, whereas there are some some really great innovation that could be like boosted and you know just uh, just tried and uh, and make maybe make a difference somewhere. But mm-hmm. you know it's also about reproducing those those initiatives, etc. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this case, it almost sounds like um, it's it's better to look away from the big picture and look more towards um, sort of smaller actions like you say that could actually make um a more concerted or, or focused impact on on this crisis i mean it's not all just about europe um you've also worked in other regions of the world i understand from african countries to the united states and, and mexico um mm-hmm. what has impressed you or, or shocked you the most from working in those regions compared to what we've been talking about that's been been happening in europe are, are there things that europe could learn from what other countries are doing or, or is there something that you know the, the Europe likes to you know think that it can export rules and standards and, and things through the green deal um, other things that Europe could teach the rest of the world in in terms of dealing with this kind of crisis as well yeah indeed I've had the opportunity to work uh, in countries and in continents with really opposite situations but in some respects, they are not so different. Uh, just to, to give you an example, the per capita consumption of energy in sub-Saharan Africa, except excluding South Africa, is 180 kilowatt hour, mm-hmm. uh, whereas it's more than uh, 6,000 6, per person in Louisiana in the US. <laughs> so it means that uh, African people basically use the equivalent of you running a microwave once a year. Um yeah. But, you know, what I find really fascinating is, uh, so in America, people consume electricity like crazy. But, you know, the thing is, their networks are quite uh, quite weak. And I, I'm still shocked when, you know, I'm still shocked about what happened in, in Texas in February 2021 when there was a big blackout or or the fires caused by the California networks uh, every every summer. or and And in Africa... There are some problems with the networks as well, and and for instance, if you are one of the happy few who is connected to the grid, uh, the electricity supplied is often very unreliable, and uh, so people learn how to do without it. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, you know, it's also a question of life or death. Um, but you know, in both cases, uh, we see big consumption peaks in the hottest months of the year. And I think Europe has a lot to learn about uh, the resilience of people and of, of systems to those uh, summer consumptions. Mm-hmm. And the second point that I think is we have so much to learn from is the increasing use of decentralized solutions. Because as I said, uh, uh, the grids are 
very unreliable or too expensive. So it makes much more sense uh, to switch to alternative systems, such as uh, solar panels on your roof and batteries as well. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of things we could uh, draw lessons from. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the top of the episode, you said that you know, a lot of the problems that we are um, currently, it's fair to say, struggling to deal with um, could have probably been negated completely if, you know, even just a couple of years, certain policies had been um, uh, implemented more forcefully. So like you say, with, you know, summers getting warmer, um, now seems like a good time for um, for Europe to uh, perhaps take note of other countries that have had a lot more experience with with dealing with this, this particular issue. Um, thank you, Maureen, uh, for joining us for this episode. I have a funny feeling that we will uh, have to have you back at some point to uh, discuss how things have uh, changed or not, as the case may be, in in the coming months, because, um, yeah, this crisis is probably going to stick around for a long time, change, uh, hopefully get better at some point, if they listen to the good advice that you've given us in this episode. So I'd like to thank you for um, for your time and, and joining us here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Maureen. Thank you, Sam. So on the downside, this is a crisis that is going to keep battering away at us for some time yet. But on the upside, there are policies and measures available to authorities to mitigate its effects and hopefully prevent a repeat of the hardships that many people are already having to live with. Now, before I sign off, I need to give you the answer to today's quiz question, of course. I asked you at the top of the show, what percentage of global energy consumption is caused by heating? 25, 50 or 75%? The answer is 50%. If ever in doubt, just go straight down the middle. Uh, The other 50% is made up of electricity at 20% and transport at 30%. Well done to everyone who got that one right. Thanks for listening in to this, the seventh edition of The Policy Dispatch. We'll be back for at least one more show before the Christmas break. Uh, Check out foresight.dk for details on how to listen to all of our podcasts and also how to get your hands on the latest edition of the magazine. Until next time, goodbye for now.